1 Corinthians 13. We'll look again beginning in verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. On December 6th, 2016, Eric Jones was commuting on the North Jersey Coastline train. When, at least to Eric, an emergency occurred. In fact, it was such an emergency that he pulled the emergency door release on the train. Bringing the train to a halt, he jumped out of the train and onto the tracks below. Now, not only did this stop the train that he was on, causing a delay for everybody who was on there, it actually backed up the schedule for most of the day. Most of the rest of the trains were then late. What could be so serious? What could be such a potentially tragic event that would cause someone to do something so reckless, thoughtless, and dangerous? He dropped his cell phone. He dropped his cell phone. His cell phone had fallen out and then slipped out through some area there in the train and onto the tracks below. And his immediate response was to pull the emergency door release to get his phone. He was arrested and he was charged with defiant trespass. You're allowed to be on the train on the tracks, but you're not allowed to be on the tracks. So he's charged with with trespassing as well as interfering with transportation. i got a few folks who interfere with my transportation. At times I wish I could give them a ticket. Nonetheless... You know, here's what I thought was interesting about the story. Not just that a man could be that selfish to disrupt what would be the schedule of thousands of people. What I, the thought that I had was, how many people would have done the same thing? Probably more than we would like to admit, right? In fact, I won't even embarrass you here. But for some folks, their cell phone is practically an appendage, and so for it to fall off is like a hand falling off. Maybe they would see this as a potentially life-changing kind of situation. Now, we may not have that kind of an extreme reaction at times, but perhaps we can be honest here. We can all do our fair share of selfishness, right? We can all have kind of our fair share of being self-centered. I don't know if we always do it intentionally or, or deceptively or because we want to harm other people, but I do think our natural default in a lot of ways is to organize our lives in such a way so that we're kind of at the center of it. This is why I think when you read a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 13, you feel like you're in the crosshairs. I think this is why each and every one of these points especially when, when explained kind of in their breadth and their depth, can be, can be so clearly applicable to every believer, at least every honest believer. 
And I'll just go ahead and let you in on this. If you've read through this list and you've thought one of these qualities does not apply to you, I would do a survey of the people around you, all right? Because my guess is every single one, especially this second section we're in, not just where Paul is describing the, the word love for us, these 16 descriptions of love, but in particular, kind of the heart of the text are eight negative descriptions where Paul tells us what love is not. These, to me, seem to be the the most troubling ones. And so it's understandable why so much of this definition and description of love uh, is occupied with these negative concepts because in many ways this really does help provide clarity what love looks like. And so this is, this is what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a. Paul gives us a description of love. And, I, and while I've said I've got, this is a 16-point sermon, I, I took those 16 characteristics and we've divided them up into four categories. Uh, we talked about kind of how love reacts. What, what is it that love does? And Paul begins by saying love is patient, or suffers long, love is kind. And then we've been in the midst of these eight qualities, and that is love's rejection. What love should reject, what genuine love should say no to. We've already looked at several of them. Jealousy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, selfishness, and anger. And really, just to pick back up with the language of anger, when, when Paul says there at the end, the middle, I guess, really, of verse 5, so does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. In fact, some translations may actually use the phrase, is not easily provoked. And the truth is, there are some things that happen that rightly require some indignation and anger. It's fine if some things make you angry. There are really, really bad things out there, and it's fine for there to be indignation. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about how easy it can be for us to become easily provoked. How easy it can be for us to become irritated. How easy it can be for us to speak before we think. For us to merely react to people and to assume that other people around me need to organize their lives in such a way so that I'm happy. And if that doesn't happen, then I've got a short temper and I'm I'm quick to react. This is what he means by love is not provoked. Those those who are genuinely loving, who are seeking to love as Christ has loved us, then they take seriously that, that I need to suffer long. And as we noted last week, all of these negative concepts can be put under either patience or kindness. So it's, it's really a, a brilliant text here, uh, as, as love really is, defined by patience and kindness. So Paul has told us that love is not Provoked. Well, I think that then leads kind of into the next one. What, what's another quality that love rejects? And if you're taking notes here, blanks to fill in. Love rejects resentment. Love rejects resentment. And you could even put this out beside it. Love resists the natural tendency to hold grudges. I didn't put that up there, but that may be helpful. Love, so if you want to put a positive spin on it, where Paul says there at the end of verse 5, love thinks no evil. 
I'm going to put a positive spin on it, then love is, is a quality that resists the natural inclination to hold a grudge, to hold on to wrongs done to us. And that means I'm going to use another word, another word that can sit heavy on our hearts, Christ-like love, forgives. And that sounds like such a sweet word when we're talking about Christ, right? And we're talking about God's relationship to us. But I, I will tell you, some of, some of the, 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 the deepest conversations I can get into as a pastor, some of, some of the most uh, obvious emotional reaction to some parts of the word come when I start talking about people forgiving other people. And I understand that's not always easy. I mean, sometimes we hold grudges against people, well, because we are easily provoked, right? I mean, sometimes we might hold a grudge because we're easily irritable and irritated in the moment, and so somebody does something, says something, and we, we remember that. But sometimes, some of what happens to us is bad. Sometimes the other person has done something wrong. That's where a phrase like this, I think, is troubling, but we need to We need to think carefully about it. So let's make sure we understand the phrase. Again, the New King James uses the phrase, thinks no evil. Now, the gut reaction to that, just looking at that in the English text, we might assume if you only read New King James Version, well, love then would think the best of other people, right? If If I am trying to think no evil, then I might assume what this is really talking about is I'm, I'm going to assume you've got the best intentions in mind. Keeping in mind, he's talking about relationships in the church, right? He's not talking about relationships with the world. This is in the context of relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, in particular the manner in which they are exercising their spiritual gifts and their ministry, chapters 12 and 14. And, and so you could read this and think, yeah, all right, well, that's what that means. I, I want to make sure I'm giving people the benefit of the doubt. I'm thinking well of others. And this is certainly a part of it. But the term really has a a bit more depth to that. And so some of you might either have a a textual note in your translation, like the margin, or down on the bottom of, of your text if you have a New King James Version, or if you have another translation, it may just use this. That when I read, thinks no evil, yours says, keeps no record of wrong. Keeps no record of wrong. See, this is now, this is really starting to get to the heart of that one word that the New King James translates as thinks. It's really an accounting term. To to keep no record of wrong. When Paul says that love thinks no evil, the word think there referring to someone who may want to keep a mental record. And here's especially what he has in mind. Somebody who wants to keep a mental record everything you do wrong in order to bring it back up against you when the time comes. Now, I know no one here has ever done that, right? You've never held a grudge against anyone. I know I'm talking about everybody else around you, okay? I know I'm not talking to you. You're right, I'm talking to your neighbors sitting next to you. I'm not talking to you, right? No, the truth is this, is, this can be a real natural reaction to want to hold a grudge. 
And thinking about it in the language of accounting, I think we can see the imagery behind it. If you think, you know, of a bookkeeper, and this is where the term also would be used. Let's say you're in first century Corinth, and you need to go to a uh, a local purveyor of some kind of grain, all right? You need to purchase grain of some kind, perhaps for livestock. And so what, what might you do? You've got two options. You could go and you could pay for it ahead of time and assume that that guy is going to deliver the goods to you. You're going to go ahead and pay him and assume he's going to make good on that. More often than not, though, and we do business this way often, don't we? More often than not, what you're going to do is you're going to say, I'll pay you upon receipt of the product. Then, of course, there may be some businesses that split it, right? You pay a down payment, and then when the product comes, you get the, we'll pay the rest of it. So here's what a bookkeeper would do. Even in this day, a bookkeeper would take, uh, in first century corn, take your name. One column would have a debit column. Another column would have a credit column. And he would either make a notation of the credit you've paid so you get the product without having to pay any else, or the debit would be marked. You owe such and such an amount of money when the product arrives. It's pretty straightforward imagery. Paul says it thinks no evil. Paul has in mind that accounting of keeping track of debits. And what, the way this would translate is that you, you as an individual, when somebody does something wrong, you know what you're doing? You, you bring out their book in your mind, the book that you have of people in your lives, the book that keeps the record of all the junk they do to you. And so you're, you go back, you go, you go back to 1965, all right, when they did this thing, and man, debit. And then, then maybe every now and then there's a moment where they come back to you, they apologize, you reconcile, and then you mark off, paid in full, right? Credit section. All right, good. We've, we've balanced the sheets. But man, then they just can't help themselves and they go spouting off again. So you're marking up debit after debit after debit. This is what he has in mind. Love does not think of others that way. Love does not keep, does not mentally assess the wrongs that have been done in order to extract payment from somebody later. And that's why I use the word resentment. Love rejects resentment. Love rejects this tendency to want to hold things against people. I mean, the truth is, when somebody's done something wrong, we feel justified in holding it against them, and there's a part of us that kind of likes it. We kind of like to hold stuff against people. Now, I know what I'm talking about here, though, is difficult. I understand. I understand that forgiveness is difficult. You, sometimes you can be really, really hurt. And you may even wonder, all right, to, to what degree do I have to forgive? And we've talked about forgiveness before. Let me just get, again reiterate this. When you forgive somebody, you're not letting them off the hook. In other words, when you forgive, it's not like God forgiving you. You can't forgive people the way God forgives you. What do I mean by that? You cannot release them from the consequences of their sin. You, don't get, you can't do that. You don't have the power to do that. You don't have the divinity to be able to do that. That's not what you're doing when you forgive somebody. If somebody has sinned against you, understand the greater concern is that is a sin against the Lord. And who is it that, that then extracts payment from them? Well, it'll be the Lord, right? In other words, that's, 
That's him and his work. When you forgive, you are letting people off of your hook. Letting people off of your hook. And, and, and I, I would encourage you to think very carefully about this. Because, in fact, I can do something else. Do you want a surefire recipe for being unhappy and miserable? Here you go. You ready for this? If you want to be miserable and unhappy, make regret your best friend and make resentment right next to it. The most bitter and unhappy people have both of these qualities as a part of them. Paul Paul comes along and warns us here then about this one. Think no evil. Love keeps no record of wrong. Now, again, you may hear that and you think, well, Pastor, that seems really hard. Well, you know what makes this even harder? Because we have the best example in all of the Bible about somebody who forgives. God. Now, I've just said, you don't forgive like God does, but God is still the model and motivation in many ways, because how, what is the means by which God gives? It's an unconditional forgiveness, right? And when God forgives, God is one who no longer holds the sin against us. Romans 4. We go on to the, to the next, uh, next slide. Romans chapter 4, I think it's there in your notes. Romans chapter 4, verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And this is probably Paul just quoting from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. In other words, when you receive Christ, when the gospel then is brought to bear on your life, the good news is is that now God no longer keeps a record of wrong. I'm not saying you don't need to deal with your sin when you commit sin and ask for God's forgiveness. I just mean that sin is no longer held against you. The sin has been forgiven and covered in Christ Jesus. God no longer keeps track. When you get to heaven and God opens the book with your name on it, it just says paid in full. It just says paid in full. That's all it says. God keeps no record of wrong. And then I like Proverbs 19.11. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Whew, you want to memorize something, that may be a good one, right? I mean, radically difficult, all right? I'm not saying this isn't, that this is easy, but that, what, what, a, what a statement. And here's the real truth of the matter. If you hold a wrong committed against you, against somebody else, who does that hurt? Does the person that, that you are resentful toward, now some of them may be bothered by your resentment, but are you more bothered by it than they are? Absolutely. My guess is, and, and all of us have this, you may have somebody in particular that you're thinking of right now. My guess is that individual sleeps a lot better than you do. Your resentment is really a problem for you more than it is for the person against whom you may be resentful. Keeps no record of wrong. All right, next one. Love also rejects, this is a brilliant one, love rejects sin. This is shocking, right? Except notice how, how Paul talks about this. Now, now he's going to give us in verse 6 two qualities. We make two points out of them. He gives us two qualities here. And they're kind of pit against one another. So love does not rejoice in iniquity, 
but rejoices in the truth. So, he brings to a conclusion this negative set of descriptions, and then he adds this positive description here. He turns back to a positive statement about love. And, And the first one there says, love does not rejoice in iniquity. The word rejoice would would speak to taking joy in, delighting in, uh, appreciating, desiring. So here's what he's saying about love. And I think there's three kind of trajectories here for what he means. Love does not rejoice in my own sin. Love does not rejoice in the sin of others. And this, you may be thinking, oh yeah, okay, Pastor, no brainer. How about this one? Love does not rejoice when the sin of somebody else brings them down. I had you on one and two you're good with, right? But number three, I don't know. In fact, that this, this, this one phrase I think perhaps could be as tricky at times as love thinks no evil. Love keeps no record of wrong. Now, you may, you may say, what do you mean, Pastor, that, that love does not rejoice in iniquity? I mean, it seems crazy that anybody would... Do people really delight in and take joy in iniquity? Yeah. Yeah, they do. A lot. Have you ever heard anybody brag about their sin? I have. We don't have to go into too much detail, but I promise you there's going to be some men you could get around. I don't mean men in the church. Hopefully not, all right? There could be some men you'd get around who absolutely will brag about the nature of their relationships with women. Yeah, they'll brag about it. I think there are people that will brag. I've heard this. I've heard, I've heard people brag about how long, how many uh, drinks they could have before they passed out. Delighted in it. Delighted in it. And, and so then there's the corollary. I don't, want to, I don't rejoice in my own sin, and I also don't want to rejoice in the sin of others. Are there other people who will then take part in the rejoicing in somebody's sin? Somebody who brags about sin, or is there somebody who would then come alongside and say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's good. Of course there are. So, so I think Paul's first instruction here is we want to make sure that we're not we're not delighting in taking joy in sin who but now now i'm going to dig down just a little bit deeper here and, and there's going to be a balance to live here but i do think it's worth thinking about i think we need to be careful how often sin is a source of entertainment for us and the truth is, you all know exactly what I mean by what I've said. The stuff we go to for media and entertainment, and listen, I can be just as guilty as anybody. Do I delight and take joy in what God would call horrific and ungodly, dishonorable? I think we can. I think we can. In fact, I think our, our culture is really good at this. This is what our culture does really well, to take what God has called evil and then expect us to celebrate it. It's really uncanny. The irony in this is really uncanny. Take these things that clearly God has laid out in His Word, says these are, these are forbidden, these are boundaries you don't cross, and what does our culture do? Man, we jump over those boundaries like we're Olympic 
long jumpers, don't we? And we brag about it, and we rejoice in it, and we want everybody else to rejoice with us. Love, love doesn't rejoice in sin. Love doesn't rejoice in these things that God has clearly said are ungodly. Now, again, you may say, well, this sounds odd, but Romans chapter 1 lays this out, by the way. Romans 1 you know, is this, this indictment against all of humanity for her sin against God, how she relishes in her sin. And, and Paul brings this dramatic chapter to a close by saying, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things, meaning the things he had just talked about, all the sinful ways people act, those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And the word approve is more than just just say, well, if you want to do that, that's fine. It is language of, of celebrating it. Encouraging it. And isn't that fascinating where Paul says, even though they know the righteous judgment of God, don't let anybody out there tell you that there's not that, that, that they... They don't think they're ever going to come under God's wrath. Every human heart, I believe, based on Romans 1, and then again into chapter 2, I think every human heart somewhere in there absolutely knows that I deserve God's judgment. And I deserve God's judgment against these things. And yet, they still practice them. And they still encourage others to rush headlong into practicing the same things. But, but let me mention... The other trajectory. Mention, I, so I don't want to love my sin. I don't want to love the sin of, the, of others. But a lot of commentators think that really what Paul has in mind here, even though I think he's got all three of these things in mind, what he really has in mind here is love does not relish in, take joy in, is not delighted when others fall into sin. You say, Pastor, are there really people out there? I mean, would there be brothers and sisters in Christ who would do that? Well, first of all, let's first take, take maybe just the, the worldly perspective. Is it just me, or does it seem like the media relishes in it when a Christian leader falls? Right? I mean, that's not a, that's not a controversial statement, is it? I mean, they, they love it. It seems like they love it. Whether it's you know, some kind of sexual misconduct, financial misconduct, they run afoul of the law in some way. It seems like the media really loves to roll out these Christian leaders who fall. And, and then, then just, just follow comments that are made. Read opinion pieces that are written about it. I think the world loves it. I think they rejoice in that iniquity. Alright, pastor, I get that. World definitely loves to see us sin. They can call us hypocrites. That, that, that means they can discount then our message. But believers, do we do that? Gonna get real. Are you ready? Have you ever done this? Honey? Did you hear about the neighbors? They've got an awesome marriage. Have you heard that? Is that what we say? Do, do, do we come along and say, I can't believe it. I don't know if you've heard this news, but so-and-so, you know, they're in your Sunday school class. I, I bet you've not heard this little, this little bit, juicy bit. But so-and-so, did you know their kids always obey them? Is that what, is that what we say? Is that how we talk? Or... Have you heard 
He moved out and moved in with his mistress. You all, have you heard that? Truth be told, sometimes there might even be a little upturn at the corner of the mouth. I'm just telling you that because I want you to pray about it. Did, have you heard? You heard what so-and-so? Did you hear what their kid did? See, you know where this happens? It happens in a sin that runs rampant in churches. Gossip. Gossip. Now, there's, there's some more dangerous and malevolent forms of gossip than others. We'll warn you here, though, about this. Some people assume if it's gossip, then it's a lie. It's not true. You can be telling the truth about somebody and be gossiping. You can. You can even say it's a prayer request. It can still be gossip. Gossip is really a matter of the heart, by the way. It's as much about the heart, the mind, and I think that's part of what Paul's getting at. I think there are people. Now, if I were to come up to you and say, oh, your problem is you love sin. Oh, man, I, no, no, pastor, that's not, that's not what I mean. You are relishing, you are rejoicing in iniquity. No, pastor, that's not what I'm doing. But kind of. So this, this, is, this is how love should not behave. Love does not rejoice. Delight in the iniquity of others. Instead, love reacts positively. And let me, let me give you this last one here. For today, anyway. As, so, now, so now we've got these eight negative statements. And so, you know, so Paul's told us about how love reacts. Now, then he's told us about what love rejects. And now it's how love rejoices. And, and, and in, this, in this particular category, there's only one. That's the end of verse 6. Love rejoices in truth. So, if you pit the word sin there against truth, here's what Paul has in mind. Sin being that which is unrighteous, that which is unholy, that which violates God's standard. I don't want to delight in those things. Instead, I want to delight in the truth. Isn't it interesting that that's how he describes it? He doesn't say, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in obedience. Nor does he say, love does not rejoice in falsehood, but rejoices in the truth. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, in sin, in unrighteousness. Instead, love rejoices in truth. Because biblically speaking, truth is what precedes holiness, obedience, and fidelity. Truth is what precedes righteousness. So what I need to delight in, in order to stop delighting in iniquity, I delight in truth. God's righteous standard. God's infallible word to us. I, I, I want to delight in, take pleasure in. These things that God tells me to delight in and take pleasure in. I should love holiness. I should love that which is consistent with holiness. I should love that which is consistent with what God has said that we should do and love that you know, when God says we should avoid that. I should love it when that's avoided. I, these are the things that I should love and celebrate. Love rejoices in the truth. And I, and I, I would just encourage you then to, to know that in, in order to rejoice in the truth, we need to have our mind then centered on the truth. 
should include spending time in His Word, but I think a great instruction comes to us from Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, and, and many would suggest Paul intends to begin the phrase with that one word. That is a premier word then that the rest kind of riff off of. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, you want to do a little Bible study? Take this text, go home tonight or tomorrow morning, and read right next to it the last half of Psalm 19. And see if you see any commonalities there. Because in Psalm 19, David, he begins Psalm 19 by expressing how God's glory is revealed to us through the heavens. The heavens you know, are declaring to us what, what is God's goodness. And, and then he goes into a section where he talks about the goodness and rightness of the law. And he talks about it being true and it being pure and it being lovely. In other words, how, how, do we, how do we then adhere to verse 6? Well, we, we recognize that sin is not something that, that should be that which we take delight in. Instead, we should delight ourselves in truth. What kind of truth? This kind of truth. Where do you find this kind of truth? Well, the psalmist begins the whole book by saying that, we should, that the, the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of God. So my mind and my heart should be given to the things of His Word. This, by the way, is why the way we deal with the Bible here is so important. The reason why we're going to build everything around Scripture, because this is God's Word to us. We should delight and cherish His Word. This is why we sing the way that we sing. This is why worship is organized the way that it's worshipped. Because we, we want to then fill our minds and hearts. This is why I would encourage you to listen to the right kind of music, to listen to good solid preaching, to make sure you are reading the right kind of books. Just because somebody says they're a Christian, writes a book and puts Scripture in it, doesn't mean you should be reading it. We want to make sure that we're filling our minds with that which enables us to delight in the truth. The truth is God has given to us. Because really, in many ways, this then is an appropriate bookend to the beginning Love is patient and kind. You want, to, you want to encourage patience and kindness in your life? And love the truth. Rejoice in the truth. Do those things which are indicative of rejoicing in the truth. And I think you'll then find yourself growing in patience and in love. Alright, so ne- next week we'll, we'll move on ahead. We get to this great statement uh, where, where Paul talks about the perseverance of love. And, and how love then continues on and never, never fails. Uh, and, uh, and that'll be then our focus together uh, next Wednesday night. Let's pray together. Loving and gracious God, we thank you again for gathering us here together and grateful for this word, grateful for its clarity. And Father, we ask that you would continue by your spirit to bring this word to bear on our lives, uh, that, that we might carefully assess the nature of our own love, uh, a, a love that, that should keep no record of wrong, a love that does not rejoice in sin, but rejoices in truth. And Lord, may we organize our lives in such a way that, that this, this is how we're thinking about things. This is how we're trying to relate to others. I thank you for these who are out uh, tonight, who've, who've given of their time and, 
uh, taken time away from other things they could have done, but they wanted to be with your people in prayer and in your word. I pray your blessings on them uh, for, for this, this time together. I pray, God, as we now go through the rest of this week, we do so in faith. We trust you with our lives. Use us as a means to your end. We pray you'd give us opportunity to not only faithfully live the gospel, but to share it with those who are lost and dying. Gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.